Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes at soothing decibels. This is episode 38. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling juiced up. I mean, I only woke up a couple hours ago because I had this weird thing at four in the morning last night and my internet went out and I was going to go to bed anyways, but for some reason my brain went into a fight or flight mode and was like, you must fix this internet before you go to bed because if you want to watch TV randomly, you're going to need it. So got on a little chair, plugged and unplugged over and over again. And after like 45 minutes of doing it, I finally like gave up. And then I took one last shot at it and it connected. I was like, oh, cool. And then I ended up watching two, two episodes of Community because that show is awesome. It's comforting. You know, just it's feel good, silly uh, partnership between friends, unlikely friends. And it's, it's directed and written by Dan Harmon. So uh, that Rick and Morty vibe is still there. But like the PG Rick and Morty vibe, which is fun. So feeling good too because I ate six bananas yesterday and that, that's a lot of potassium just feeling it coursing through my veins. And I know that's kind of crazy, but I don't know. They're just a great walking around snack and I eat them really weird. I uh, take the peel off completely, throw out the peel because why do you want to hold trash, you know, while you're eating your food? Screw that. And I bite the banana at different points, like a little bit off the top, half through the middle, maybe another bite on like the lower quadrant. And I kind of see how many bites I can do before it kind of Jenga collapses. And when it does, the dogs follow me around with it. And they'll usually pick up the little banana slices on the ground. It's really cute. So I have fun with that. And I have a weird relationship with food. So this kind of, this works for me. This is definitely what I'm, this is definitely in the OCD, me and my food intake. Like I'm also eating like two to three cans of garbanzo beans a day, which is super strange. I just have a ton of them because when the first, when the pandemic first came out, everyone's like, go, go, go buy food, you know, go stack up. And I didn't have any food in my house because I'm weird like that. I just don't like having food that I can consume in my house because I'll just kind of stare and I'll, I'll graze and I'll eat it. So now I have a bunch of garbanzo bean cans and I'm preparing them in different ways, like curried, stir fry, uh, bake them, roast them, you know, all that kind of stuff. Make your own uh, hummus, that kind of stuff. But it, it feels a little crazy that I'm eating so much of the same things. Maybe I'll switch it up, get a little more variety in it. But uh, good news, though, is I read an article yesterday about, like, the six cities in the world that have the greatest longevity, you know, live the longest. And I think one of them is Sardinia, Italy, one's Okinawa, Japan. I forget the other ones. I think one's in Denmark. But they cited, like, six things that these people are doing to live long lives. And I'm doing, like, 90% of the things. So that's pretty legit. And the only thing I'm not doing is drinking a glass of wine a day. But I'm not drinking alcohol at all. Uh, so it doesn't seem, that seems like the least major of all of them that, uh, that uh, I'm not doing. So I'm feeling pretty confident that I'm going to live forever. And that's my number one goal in life. I want to live – I want to exist for as long as possible. And I don't understand why most people don't want to live forever. Everyone's like, oh, that sounds terrible. I mean, I don't want to exist that long. Existing is great. I think it's because I love. I can watch endless movies and TV and just saunter around and come up with random thoughts. That just seems like a good day to me. And I can do that forever. And there's enough movies and content. I think if people stop making movies, TV, and general content right now, I don't think I could get through, I don't know, a fifth of, I mean, uh, 5% of what's out there. So... I got a lot of stuff to cover. So I, I couldn't, I want to live for 200, 300 years. And this got me thinking, uh, what are my, if I live forever movies, like what would be my top rotation of watching a lot? And my first reaction was short circuit Two, Johnny five, 
no, I'm just joking. That movie, that movie's terrible. <laughs> but I actually really enjoy that movie for some reason. And I've never seen Short Circuit 1, so I don't know why Short Circuit 2 just does it for me. But seriously, the movie I want to talk about is Pulp Fiction. It's 1994's Quentin Tarantino, Godsend. This movie only cost $8.5 million and was like the first indie movie to really just make it in the 90s. They made $214 million worldwide and won the Cannes Film Festival in France. I mean, that is... For his second movie, his first one was Reservoir Dogs, which was generally accepted and seen as really cool, but didn't make much money. I think it only made like $11, $12 million and cost a million dollars. You know, a typical indie success. But this one blew the doors off everything. And it opened doors for controversial and bizarre to be mainstream. Like all the independent film directors like Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, Spike Lee, Steven Soderbergh, Paul Thomas Anderson kind of got these people's foot in the door. They could sell themselves as, hey, I could be the next Tarantino and you pay a little and you look really smart. And I'm guessing producers and uh, movie production teams want to be, be geniuses. You know what I mean? Like, and this is, and Tarantino kind of opened that door. And he got to push the creativity forward because, and uh, all these guys did too, but Tarantino stood apart because I'm a self titled movie nerd and he's one of us he's from knoxville tennessee he was a movie clerk at a video store and he just kind of unapologetically rips from what the movies he adored he likes like uh 70s black exploitation movies he loves kung fu movies he likes uh, like these 50s classic movies and he just picks little pieces from everything that he loves and just puts it in a new frame like he just kind of takes all these pieces of art and slices them together and creates his own thing. And that's just awesome. That just seems like something attainable. It seems just there's something innately likable about that. Cause he seems, I mean, if you looked at him, he seemed like a loser. He just this manic obsessive nerd. And he talks in that kind of hilty kind of nervous, just, he wants to get out so much information that he's almost shaking. He's vibrating with how much he wants to get out. And he got that giant forehead. He's got these really bulbous features and definitely not the best looking dude, you know, receding hairline. And I don't know, it just, it just seemed awesome that this guy who is a super nerd uh, could just gush and pay homage to the movies he loves and he obsesses over. And somehow that can spiral into him being the coolest guy on the planet that everyone thinks is the man. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, so let's run through the plot of this movie real quick. So here it is. Vincent Vega, John Travolta. And Jules Winfield, Samuel Jackson, are hitmen with a penchant for philosophical discussions. In this ultra-hip, multi-strand crime movie, their storyline is interwoven with those of the boss, gangster Marcellus Wallace, Wallace Ving Rhames, his actor, actress wife, Mia, Uma Thurman, struggling boxer, Butch Coolidge, Bruce Willis, master fixer, Winston Wolfe, Harvey Keitel, and a nervous pair of armed robbers, Pumpkin, Tim Roth, and Honey Bunny, Amanda Plummer. So it's this movie of like little vignettes. It kind of, the best part of this movie and what made it so unique was the whole movie's out of order. So there could be someone who dies uh, in the first scene and then in the second to last scene, he's still alive, you know, six hours before. So you always knew every, like, you know, every scene, every scene is definitely like a classic, but you're never sure which one follows or precedes the, the one in front of it or behind it. It just makes it insanely rewatchable because you never know what part you're really getting into. And this movie had kind of three parts for the most part, if I recall. The Bonnie situation, I mean, it's really cool. He has like 
title cards from like 1950s, 60s movies to like separate the three parts of the movie. There's the gold watch, there's uh, the Bonnie situation, and the Vincent Vega and Jules, uh, Jules situation with Marcellus Wallace's wife. I think that was the other title card. And my favorite part of this movie is the relationship between Vincent and Jules. I mean, they're just two hitmen in suits. They got weird haircuts. Samuel Jackson has this kind of Afro curl that looks wet with, you know, uh, sideburns and a weird goatee. And Travolta's got this semi-long, greasy, straight hair. I've never seen like a look like that before on a middle-aged hitman dude. They have weird accents. Samuel Jackson is just the coolest guy on the planet. And John Travolta has this weird kind of jive, 1970s kind of like cool, deep bass to his voice. And it's just fun to see Travolta back at it. He just, I like him as an actor. I mean, he just, I mean, I'm so glad that he came back into our lives because, I mean, after this, he does, you know, Broken Arrow, Face Off, uh, a lot of action movies. I mean, nowadays it's kind of embarrassing what he's doing. He's doing these silly movies that are getting panned and he's just trying to act because he thinks that no one thinks he can't act well. But he's like Nicolas Cage. He's just a bizarre dude that's fun to watch. And just seeing him as this uh, drug addicted, but like not in a sad way. He just, you know, he occasionally does heroin. He smokes weed. He went to Amsterdam for a year. It's just just intoxicating to watch him kind of spin stories. Like he's talking to Jules about his Amsterdam stories, about how the quarter pounder in uh, France is called Le Big Mac, or Le, Le Big Mac. No, not Le Big Mac. It's called uh, Royale with Cheese. There we go. Wow, how did I forget that? It's embarrassing. Or he's talking about how in uh, Amsterdam they put mayonnaise on the fries. He has discussion with Jules about foot rubs and what constitutes flirting versus uh, being a friend. And he just has a really good line. He's like, would you give a man a foot rub? And Jules is like, screw you, man. Shut up. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. And they got all angry about it. Love it. And also uh, Sam Jackson in this role. Normally, Sam Jackson, as the years went on, he always has this, he's always dialed up to 13. He's always screaming. He's always just, you know, Sam Jackson, you know, snakes on a plane, bald, eyes bulging out of his head, screaming at somebody. In this movie, he oscillates from, ooh, oscillate, good word. Yay. Good, good for me and my thesaurus. I like that. Oscillate. Say it one more time. Oscillate. So he oscillates uh, from laid back to this unbridled fury. It's, the, it's a nice balance. Because later in life, like I said, he becomes more one note. In this movie, he fluctuates. There's another word, fluctuates. I just, I love good words. Yeah, the oscillating and fluctuates. Put those on my tombstone somehow. How would you do that? You'd say he oscillated between putting a normal gravestone or this silly one. And that's all I got. And his, his body fluctuates with the angels. That's, that's not right, but... I think it'd be a funny gravestone. But uh, so Jules and, and Vincent, after uh, having these philosophical discussions, have this weird situation where they're retrieving a briefcase for their boss, Marcellus Wallace. And it's nine in the morning. They go to this apartment and all these guys are having big kahuna burgers at nine in the morning, which is just great. I just love that they're having hamburgers at nine in the morning. That's fantastic. And Sam Jackson, you know, eats one of the burgers, comments on it. And, you know, he's like, can I wash down something? Can I have something to wash down this tasty burger? And he just like takes a big sip of Sprite. And he just shoots a bunch of them after, uh, and he shoots a bunch of them. And he, uh, he has this Bible speech, which is really cool. You know what I mean? Like anyone who recites anything from the Bible 
before uh, they murder someone. It's always cool in movies. It's just, a, I'm sure Tarantino stole it from something in the 70s. That was really cool. But uh, it seems like Jules is the only person in this movie who learns or grows because after he kills one or two of the guys, one of them comes out and fires at Jules and Vincent and he misses completely from like five feet away. And Jules takes it as a miracle. And he's like, I'm done with this life after today, after getting this case back to Marsalis, I'm just going to wander the earth and try to help people. Oh, okay, cool. He's going to learn because movies are about growth. And you know, Jules is the one character where it's like, okay, he had a break from the world he's existing in. He's going to try something different. That's cool. And just in general, so I mean, like back to the Tarantino of it all, he just has these little movie tricks that are great, like that Marcellus uh, case that he has, that he's that him that uh, Vincent and Jules are retrieving. It's it, they open it a bunch, and you don't see what's inside, and it's just this gold kind of uh, it's this gold glow. And I'll get into the theories behind what's behind what's in the case later, but and also the code to open the case was six six six, so that's just really cool. Uh, Mia Wallace, his wife. She draws a square in the sky to say someone's like a square, and there's a little. He makes a little animated dotted square up here, and I just love stuff like that. The title cards I mentioned, just really cool. You know, it feels like you're watching a double feature in the 1970s or something like that. And Tarantino never makes. He never forgets for one second that he's making a movie, and he's just in love with that fact. And he's making sure to remind the viewer every second that you're watching a movie and this is fun, and that. None of this is real, and of sure, this is absurd and shocking and bizarre, but you're in a theater, and everything's going to be okay. I just li- I like that. So, uh, I mean, like, the scenes that, uh, that really jumped out at me were uh, Mia and Vincent's dance scene. I mean, that's just classic. Uh, John Travolta, I don't, think, I don't think anyone in the world has made more people happy by dancing over the entirety of their career, if you think about it. So, I mean, he did Saturday Night Fever. He did Urban Cowboy. He did, I mean, this this dance scene with him and Mia taking their shoes off at Jackrabbit Slims, which is this 1950s kind of um, like retro restaurant where everyone dresses as like Buddy Holly or Marilyn Monroe. And they just get on the dance, dance stage, take their shoes off, and they just start grooving. And it's just like dance movies you've never seen before. I guess Travolta, when he was eight, won a twist uh, contest. And he had some moves from like back in those days. And that's where you get the kind of like peace signs across his head kind of stuff. And the kind of weird oscillating foot motions. And he, I guess he showed Uma Thurman a thing or two too. So she learned. So that's fun. And also in this scene, it's really fun. Uh, Steve, Steve Buscemi is Buddy Holly, their waiter. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's Steve, Steve Buscemi. And he actually, he's pretty handsome. It's kind of weird when he's got a nice mop of hair and a nice suit on. He's actually kind of handsome. So props to Steve Buscemi, who, fun fact, was a firefighter for a long time before uh, he became an actor. He was, in, uh, he was a firefighter in New York. And I just, I just find that neat. I like when people had a life before uh, they were actors. It seems like they're more filled out as people. And I love that uh, Mia orders a $5 milkshake and uh, Vincent is like blown away by this fact. He's like, there's not bourbon in there. Like, what do you, how, why is it a $5 milkshake? And when he drinks it, he's just, he's, he's clearly high on heroin. He's like, God damn, that's a good milkshake. And it's just, it's just fun to watch him kind of slip and fall and kind of be clumsy. I mean, there's that meme of him walking back and forth confused that I think everyone uses nowadays. And kind of fun that him and Mia flirt the whole time and they go back to Mia's house and he knows he shouldn't sleep with her because she's Marcellus, his boss's wife. 
And everyone has that kind of moment where you're in a situation where you shouldn't do something and you look at yourself in the mirror and you talk yourself into what you should do. And sometimes you do it, sometimes you don't, but everyone's kind of been there. And that's, the, and that's, that's the fun, like lived in part of it. And then the crazy part is when Mia finds the heroin in uh, Vincent's pocket and she thinks it's Coke and she starts snorting it. And it's like, they just direct cut to Vincent in his car, panicking, calling his drug dealer saying like, she's ODing on me. She's dying on me, man. And this whole movie has been like slick and cool and nothing has been chaotic up until this point. And then bam, this there's his boss's girlfriend is dying on him uh, because, and it's his fault and he's going to die, obviously or be tortured if he doesn't figure out how to stop this. So he, the drug dealer's like, don't, don't come to the house. I mean, I don't want I don't want her here. I don't want someone dying coming here. He's like too late. And he just crashes the car into the house. I love that. That's like, He's just so panicky, he couldn't even stop the car in time. And he gets her out, and the drug dealer has an adrenaline needle, and you know they make a little spot on her chest plate. They draw a little uh, red circle. And then Tarantino being Tarantino, you know, they wind up to put the uh, the needle up, and because you have to like hit it through the, the breastbone. They explain it really well, actually. Uh, it's Patricia Arquette is the drug dealer's girlfriend, and she has a bunch of tattoos and uh, piercings, and it seems like she's an expert. She, I think she's in nursing school. So she's explaining it really well. So they like freeze when the, the needle's really high in the air and you're like, there's tension. You're like, breathe in and you don't breathe out until you see the needle go in. Then she like just pops out of it and just starts like jumping on the floor and flopping around. And the relief afterwards, I mean, it's so great. Uh, one, I forget who said is it, but someone says to me, say something. And she goes, something. <laughs> and she's just looking down at the needle. Just little Tarantino moments like that are great. And when uh, Vincent drops Mia off afterwards, uh, she was an actress, like a failed actress, and she had a pilot for a movie or a, for a TV show. And she's supposed to tell a joke at the end of each show. And she's like, would you want to hear one of my jokes? And it's a stupid little joke. It's a, like Papa Tomato, Mama Tomato, and Baby Tomato are walking down the street. And Baby Tomato falls behind. And Papa Tomato gets real angry and goes back and smushes little Baby Tomato. And he just says, ketchup. And Vincent has this little, you know, little, little exhale laugh, like, thank God that you didn't die kind of thing. And then he just kisses the air, just, just says goodbye. And just, I mean, like, it's great vignette scenes that it, he, he loves his characters, but he's not afraid to kill them, to put them in dangerous situations. He, he loves them for a moment. It's, just, it's like why I like that Before Sunrise movie. It was just this temporary one night of a movie. And with Tarantino characters, they're, you're not wishing that they live on forever. You wish that they are entertaining in the time that they're on screen. This isn't like, oh, I hope, because, you know, you watch Forrest Gump and you want him to be happy forever. You know, you want to watch him ride off into the sunset and have 30 more years of joy in his life because he went through so much. In these movies, you're like, use it, abuse it. You know what I mean? It's like Pulp Fiction. The books are just these pulpy novels that you read, enjoy, and forget. And that's what, that's what he's doing. And it's what I love. And so, I mean, like, there's other subplots, too, like Butch, who's Bruce Willis as the boxer subplot. I think this might be Bruce Willis's best performance ever. It's either this, Die Hard, or The Jackal. And I know most of you are going to be like, The Jackal? What the fuck is The Jackal? Jackal is fantastic. It's Bruce Willis as an international contract killer who's also kind of a master of disguise, and it's him and Richard Gere kind of going toe-to-toe. He's got these giant fifty caliber uh, rifles that he, like, puts in vans and assassinates political figures 
He's got a really weird haircut. I love it. But uh, this performance is kind of this, the overconfident, uh, kind of sweaty, panicky Bruce Willis and a little bit less smart-ass than Die Hard. But I don't know. There's something about it that's just – it just feels like him. It doesn't feel like he's acting. It just feels like uh, Butch is him. And so, I mean, in this subplot, Butch throws a fight. I mean, he's supposed to throw a fight for Marcellus Wallace, but he bets on himself and just knocks the guy out and just tries to make a run for it. And this this is part of my favorite part. of, And this is one of my favorite parts of Tarantino. There's no wasted scenes. So as Butch is trying to make his way out of the boxing uh, ring after he collects all his money, he gets in a taxi cab. And this should be just like a just a filler scene to get him, you know, to where he needs to go. But the taxi driver is this macabre kind of gypsy woman who's pretty gorgeous and pretty like interesting. And they have this really kind of profound philosophical conversation. So there's no wasted scenes. There's no part of the Buffalo that goes wasted with Tarantino. Uh, but then of course, Butch meet, has to meet up with his girlfriend and she's probably the worst part of this movie. She's terrible. It's Fabienne, I think is her name in her name. And she's just, I mean, she's on screen for like 10, 15 minutes. She has this floaty kind of dumb childlike voice. She understands nothing. She questions everything. She wants blueberry pancakes. It's like, I don't care. It's like, are you guys going to get out of this all right? But she does, she forces the action because Butch has to go back to his place to get his father's watch. And that leads us into the best part of the movie, which is a callback scene to when Butch was a little kid and Christopher Walken comes in as like a decorated Vietnam vet and he explains how his father's watch was carried around in his father's butt for like two, three years in a prison camp and when his father died he had to carry it in his butt and it's like it's from your grand great-grandfather your grandfather and now i pass it to you and it's like okay and then bell rings and then you hear like ding ding and then it comes back to the scene that is and you just understand why bruce willis has to risk life and limb to get this watch back and when he goes back to get his watch he ends up killing vincent and it's no big deal really it's just Vincent was on the toilet and he left his machine gun out. You know, typical. That happens to me all the time. And you don't really miss Vincent. You're like, okay, that makes sense. I mean, I guess that stuff happens. And then after that, uh, Butch runs into Marcellus Wallace on the street. And he, uh, Tarantino is really good at these kind of Seinfeld, all these stories interacting. And by the end of it, everything's cohesive. You know what I mean? Like just kind of these meshed kind of silly little vignettes that all tie together and spiderweb together. So Butch sees, Butch sees uh, Marcellus on the street and he just runs into him. And then this leads to them running and chasing each other all over LA and kind of shooting random people. It's kind of crazy. And they end up in a pawn shop where Marcellus ends up getting raped by a cop while there's a gimp in the background. And in 1994, I don't know if you guys know what a gimp was, but it's like a leather clad kind of slave BDSM guy who has like a zippered mouth and he kind of just keep him in a box and he comes out to kind of watch you do sex stuff. And like in 94, you're like, what the heck is that? I mean, internet's not really a thing. I never heard of anything like this. I think I even saw this movie in like 2004. I never heard anything like this before. And Tarantino knows how to do a shock value times like a billion. And I mean, it's just, this scene is definitely the most shocking. It's the most memorable of the whole movie, I would say. And Butch somehow escapes, but I love that he comes back and he wants to save Marcellus because he's no, no guy deserves that. And when he goes back to the pawn shop, 
he looks through, and this is one of Tarantino's best uh, directing scenes. He's looking for the proper uh, weapon so that he could save Marcellus. He grabs a hammer and he like kind of moves it a little bit. So he's like, oh, that's not going to be long enough. It's not going to work. Puts it down. Baseball bat. He's like, okay, this works. It's got a little more distance. Sees a chainsaw. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, this can cause some more damage. And then finally he looks up and the camera pans up and you see this perfectly beautiful, deadly katana. And it's like, okay, that's going to work. And then Butch goes downstairs and then just destroys everyone with the katana. And then when Marcellus finally uh, gets out of being raped, I mean, he's still the same dude. He doesn't seem that uh, disheveled. He's going to torture the cop who did it. And the cop's name is Zed, by the way. Great name for a random person. Whoever came up with Zed, that's that's just a good name. And he just seems like the same kind of badass dude, like before and after. He's not shaken up or anything. He's just going to, he's like, I'm going to torture this dude. I'm going to get medieval on his ass, I believe is the term. I think we all said that. And we didn't really know where it came from. And so, I mean, that scene is just, and then it ends. And you're like, oh, okay. Can I give me more crazy? And then it's like, oh, actually you can. Because they go back to Vincent and Jules. And this is weird because, you know, Vincent de- died 10 minutes ago, but here he is in a new situation. You're like, okay, it's like watching a ghost. And they have someone in the back of their car and Vincent turns to the, turns back to him. His name is Marvin. And he's about to ask him something and he accidentally shoots him and you know, splatters his brains all across the car. And it's the funniest line. He literally goes to Vince, it goes to Jules. Like he swatted a fly or if he, uh, like, he accidentally stepped in dog shit or something. And he goes, oh, I shot Marvin in the face. And like, you're laughing and you shouldn't be laughing and you feel bad that you're laughing. And that's the beauty of Tarantino. He just like makes you, he elicits emotions that you don't want to give him, but he just forces them out of you. And then uh, they have to go to Tarantino, actually himself, who's acting in the movie. They have to go to his house to kind of clean up because that's the only place uh, that they know that's safe. Because I mean, the car's covered in blood. They got to figure something out. And then Jules calls the wolf, Harvey Keitel, in a tux. And I can watch Harvey Keitel in a tux all day, every day. And he gets a call. He's wearing, like, gold watches. He's at some weird diamond party or something like that. I'm not sure why he's wearing a tux. It's, like, early in the day, too. It makes no sense. And he goes, it's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. And then and then they show on the screen. They pan out and it says, nine minutes and 37 seconds later. Like, how cool is that? Then he knows exactly how, how quickly he's going to get there. It's like, you can tell the wolf is a badass. And he's driving an Acura NSX, which at the time is the coolest car on the planet. I mean, it looks like it was made in the year 3050. And, you know, everyone, no one had it. Uh, we all kind of envied the idea of it. But you, you always wondered, what kind of guys drive this car? And apparently it's mob fixers who wear tuxedos and know exactly how fast they can get places. And I like the details that they put into this. Like Harvey Keitel's The Wolf just has endless ideas about how to fix this in a calm kind of way. I want to know the details of how you would fix an accidental murder in the middle of the day. So like they put blankets in the car, he assigns cleaning duties like the dash and cleaning up pools of blood. They shower the two Vincent and Jules with hoses and give them new clothes. And then finally we end the movie where we started the movie and the movie started in a diner with the robbery uh, from Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, just these two British uh, low life, criminals who seem kind of inexperienced with this but okay and Jules is there and Jules has Marcellus's case and he knows he can't give up Marcellus's case after all he's been through so he puts a gun on uh, Honey Bunny and Pumpkin and he just tells him he's like I need to keep the case but you can keep the rest of the money and 
you know, it's just this weird, profound philosophical scene where it doesn't seem like he's aware of the gravity of what's happening. He's just kind of letting things flow how he feels that they should. You know, he's in control. And I love his wallet. It says badass motherfucker on it. And like they ask him, like, which wallet is yours? He's like, the one that says badass motherfucker. And I work at a bar and at least five to six times a year, someone pulls out that wallet and it never gets old. It never brings me less joy. It always makes me smile. That person usually tips pretty well. They usually got a decent sense of humor. And it's just just little details like that. Like, how do they think to make a wallet like that? I mean, it's just so silly and so small, but it's just endlessly rememberable. And the music, too, is endlessly awesome. It's Scorsese-level excellent. There's old pop songs. There's French New Waves. Radio in Cars plays a huge role. Like, everyone always turns on the radio, and you can kind of hear the news of what's going on in the city. Tarantino kind of uses the radio as a homing beacon where kind of you can understand what's happening in LA at the time. And I just love that. That's really cool. And I guess, I guess that probably doesn't work nowadays. And there's endless monologues. Everyone has these great monologues, just these philosophical discussions. And that's the best part of any movie for me. Just the long speeches, the Elmore Leonard, Leonard kind of level, uh, kind of low level people with smart kind of uh, takes that, sound profound and then they end up getting in situations where clearly their advice didn't apply to them and i don't know there's something there's something about that i wonder what the psychology is behind that and i guess the last few questions about the movie were the case and what's in what's in the case of marcel's marcel's case that this whole movie is kind of based on and there's a theory that says it's his soul because if you notice he has a patch in the back of his neck like a big band-aid where it looks like kind of like where your your soul would be sucked out if need be. And there's this weird uh, Reddit uh, forum where they say the case is filled with the spirit of rock and roll and that Vin, uh, that uh, Jules and Vincent are Elvis and Chuck Berry and Honey Bunny and uh, Pumpkin are the British invasion trying to steal the uh, the soul of rock and, rock and roll. And there's a bunch of other like kind of small details. It seems like a stretch, but I, I mean, good for them for getting really high and trying to, you know, make something weird out of something that no one could really figure out. I don't think Tarantino's ever actually said what's in the case. And it's just fun to think about. Like, what's what's gold and glowing in the case and worth killing people over? And why did he lose it? They never talk about how desperately he wants it. But, I mean, clearly it's worth killing over. I mean, you wonder, like, what's in that case? And that's that's the best, the tension. You know what I mean? Like, you keep that tension. It's like a Hitchcock trick. And just props to him for not showing what's in it because that wouldn't have been nearly as fun. And director of photography in this movie is Roger Avery, who I freaking love. Uh, he wrote like one third of the movie. He wrote the Bonnie situation scenes, which I thought were, were probably some of the best scenes. And he also wrote Rules of Attraction, which is one of my favorite movies ever. I mean, it's a bizarro movie with these unbelievable scenes. It's Patrick Bateman, who is American, the American psycho character. It's his younger brother, Sean Bateman, in his college at Misadventures. And it's just this weird, macabre, melancholy, depressing, beautiful, mean movie. And I, I couldn't recommend it more. It's just got four or five scenes that are just so utterly unique. You can tell Roger Avery's a director of photography because the way he films this is so bizarre and unique to him. I've never seen another movie like it, so I couldn't recommend it more. If you like Pulp Fiction, watch Rules of Attraction. Plus James Vanderbeek being all creepy and weird. Just mm, love it. So, fun facts about the movie. They use the F word for 265 times. That is a lot of times. I think 
Casino uses it 300 or so. So I mean, once you hit the 200 mark, you are just swearing a lot. And I wonder what constitutes that. I mean, like, why, why do that? I know in PG-13 movies, you can only use the F word once. So you got to, like, pick your spot for it. So after the first time, people just go, you know, oh, whatever, I'll use it as many times as I want. Because I think once people use the F word over 50 times, they use it a lot. So, and it, it works in this movie. Everyone's kind of a criminal lowlife. Everyone's a sleazeball. Everyone's kind of, you know, a hardened criminal who, it, it feels right that these people are saying the F word a bunch. It doesn't feel forced. And Vincent Vega, uh, you know, John Travolta's character, is actually, uh, Vince is Vic Vega's brother, who's crazy Mark Madsen from Reservoir Dogs. You know, the dude who cuts the ear off and, you know, sings into it. And I think originally Madsen was supposed to be uh, Vincent Vega too, and they were supposed to be twins, but I think he had a scheduling conflict. Plus he has some uh, stuff in his personal life. I think he, he missed a lot of roles because uh, <laughs> he had some hardships. And also uh, Butch was supposed to be Matt Dillon at first, which I thought would have been, been fun. Matt Dillon seems like a boxer. You know what I mean? That seems right. But Bruce Willis is perfect in this. And fun fact that uh, despite Tarantino's love for Uma Thurman, she wasn't the first pick. And there was other possibilities. There was Julia Louise Dreyfus. I mean, can you imagine that? Lane being being uh being her? She's too short. She's like five foot two, five foot three. I think you need someone taller. Meg Ryan was a possibility. Halle Berry. Daryl Hannah, I think, could have worked. Joan Cusack would have been really interesting. I would have liked that. Or Michelle Pfeiffer. I would have loved Michelle Pfeiffer. But Uma Thurman's weirdness works. And it's like she only works when she's in Tarantino movies. I don't like her in anything else, really. And I think it's just when she's in these strange situations and Tarantino's kind of just in love with her and she's badass in a weird way. I don't know. Just something about that just kind of gets my motor running and just nothing else. I can't remember any other movie she's in that is any good. I mean, there's this one romantic comedy from the early nineties that's garbage called the truth between cats and dogs or the truth about cats and dogs with her and Janine Garofalo about what's like it like to be like a tall blonde versus a short mousy brunette. Uh, Let's find out. And, you know, it's fun. I do like it, but it wasn't a great movie. And that's all I can think of. So, I mean, outside of Tarantino, I feel like she doesn't really work. And I don't know. This movie just means a lot to me. It's endlessly quotable. I mean, I got a tattoo on my leg of Vincent and Jules in their their cute Lego form with their guns out, a little milkshake, and a big kahuna burger on one side. And they're, like, hanging out in a pool of blood. And at my work at Scorekeepers, we have this giant... uh, poster this like 15 by 12 poster of just the pulp fiction poster great posters just uh mia sitting on a bed reading like pulp fiction novels uh with her feet up in the air because you know tarantino likes feet and i don't know just a just a fun movie and it just it opened the door to get weird and to get violent to enjoy kind of low-level criminals with highfalutin ideas and that's what i dig and this movie is actually I thought it'd be easier to flow through this. This is hard because there's so much going on. It's like, because they jump from piece to piece over and over again, it's hard to coherently kind of keep it all together. But I think hopefully you got the gist that I dug this movie and that Tarantino is the man. And that, you know, when Tarantino has a new movie in theaters, I run to see it that weekend and I got to see it. And he never disappoints. And his stuff, oddly, you always think the first time it's not as good as what you would think it would be. And then the second, third, fourth, fifth time, it just keeps getting better and better. It's just the rewatchability factor because every time you're expecting him to do something that was similar to his last movie and he subverts that usually and tries something different. 
and you got to like readjust your settings for it. And then when you finally know what's going on, you're like, Oh, okay, cool. So props to Tarantino props to Pulp Fiction. And I'm going to, I'm going to go watch some more Tarantino movies. I think I'm gonna watch death proof. That's my favorite one actually, that no one seems to like for some reason. It's Kurt Russell in a murderous car. And there's this badass group of uh, stunt women chicks who like battle with him. And it's just this homage to like seventies movies. And I just, I don't know. I love it. And it got panned. No one seemed to like it. And everyone's stupid because Death Proof's awesome. Death Proof's in my top three at Tarantino. And no one's going to tell me otherwise. So it's like Pulp Fiction. Hmm. Top three Tarantino. I'll go Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, Death Proof. And then True Romance. But he didn't direct it. He wrote True Romance. So I don't know if that counts. Once Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's like top five. I don't like... Jackie Brown, for some reason, just doesn't do it for me, which is weird because Elmore Leonard wrote it. And it's like, he's my god king of, you know, of uh, pulpy uh, crime novels. So I don't know why I didn't like that one. But for some reason, didn't dig Jackie Brown that much. And what else we got with Tarantino? I mean, I'm going to look this up. Waiting, waiting. I didn't like Reservoir Dogs that much. It was okay out of all of his. That's just not, that's not my jam. Django was good, not great. Uh, I'm trying to think. Hateful Eight, I dug. Hateful Eight was awesome. Uh, like I said, Django was okay. Um, what else we got? Oh, Kill Bill. Kill Bills are awesome. Kill Bills are with a bullet. I mean, I take. I'll go Kill Bills above Inglorious Bastards. So I'll go Pulp Fiction one, Kill Bills uh together is two, Death Proof three, Inglorious Bastards four, and Hateful Eight five, and then. Lastly, I would go Once Upon a Time in Hollywood six, and I think that's I think that's it. I mean, everything else. I mean, it's it levels of good. It's pizza and sex, you know. What I mean, and Tarantino. None of it's bad. It's all great. So that's all I gotta say. And enjoy your day. Later.